Uh, so the B-I-B-L-E. This is the third sermon uh, in this series. And then we'll take a break. Maybe we'll just like never come back to this sermon series. Maybe we'll come back to it. But next week is the first Sunday of Advent. And so we, will, we look forward to the coming of Christ and celebrating his birth. And so next week uh, we'll begin uh, with candle lighting of the Advent wreath. And we look forward to those times. And the sermon series is on the light of the world. Or you can just call it lit. Jesus is lit. We are lit. We are the light of the world. And so for the next several weeks, we'll be looking forward um, to that. So the B-I-B-L-E, the Bible for grown-ups. What is the Bible? Maybe you've heard of that acronym. It's in the notes. B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. B-I-B-L-E. Is that new for you? Or has anyone heard that before? Some of you have. And, and it's, I think that's, um, that's a fine um, description for children. But since this is the Bible for grown-ups, we need to look at that uh, a little more carefully. Is, is it just basic you know, instructions? Is this what it, is it, what it is, basic instructions before leaving earth? Is it like an owner's manual you know, for our lives or, or for the human soul? As we get older and as we read more of the scriptures, I think it's easy to see that maybe this isn't just a simple instruction um, manual. So, I mean, if it were basic instructions for life, I would I would expect things like um, answers to questions of like, what kind of work you know, am I called to? How do I know that? And I don't really see instructions for that. In there. Or even um, like instructions on, uh, on dating. Right? There's not a lot of instructions you know, on dating. Or maybe I would expect to see uh, an index in the back. So when we need help for something, we need instructions on something, you know, how, to, how to get a mortgage or something, we could just go to the index. But there's no index um, in the back. And so when I think of basic instructions, I think that's a great teaching tool for children. But as we get older, we realize there are a lot of detailed instructions in here um, that really have no relevance uh, to our lives today. Like, um, like this, there's, a, there's very detailed instructions on how to make gold lampstands. You know? Or um, what kind of steak that we should eat according to how they, the animal chooses cud. That's not really you know, relevant. Um, there's a lot. The Bible does contain a lot of practical suggestions on, on managing your money and, and relationships and, and keeping your tongue in check or your tweets in check, maybe so don't, you don't ruin uh, relationships or lose your job. But um, if the primary purpose you know, is basic instructions, if the primary purpose of the Bible is to give us basic instructions, I think we would have a different kind of book than this. And what's surprising about um, a lot of this Bible is that um, instead of a lot of these um, instructions and, and um, well, whatever, directions uh, being kind of universally meaningful. So for people like living in Winnipeg in, in 2019, they're actually very specific, a lot of them. And uh, very, like, right into that situation at that time, thousands of years ago. And so, um, like, in Exodus chapter 23, it talks about, um, not, not that I don't think we ever need this, but have you ever wondered, like, what would you do if your enemy loses his donkey? There's instructions, in case that ever happens to you. Or, like, um, what if you're gored to death by an ox? I guess you're dead if that happens, but if someone you know, like, there's instructions, you know, for these, these things aren't really universally applicable to people like us today. And, 
In First Corinthians, even in the New Testament, First Corinthians and Romans, they talk a lot about um, eating meat that is sacrificed to idols, which is very relevant for people living in the first century Roman Empire with all of their gods and idolatry, but not so much for you know, those of us here in St. Boniface or St. Patel or, or whatever. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 23. Again, if this really is basic instructions, then do you remember what this is? Those of you who are, are um, in the health industry may know. Uh, so here's a very specific instruction. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. I think we've kind of moved beyond that with our medicine or um, Colossians chapter 4. There's actually instructions in here that I just, I don't even do. Like, I've decided I don't need to follow these commands. For example, Colossians chapter 4, verse 15 says, Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Like, even if I wanted to, like, I couldn't do that. I don't even think Laodicea exists anymore. So there's very, very specific instructions in here related to those specific times. And this is not to say that there are very, uh, there are instructions and there are practical suggestions for how we are to live our lives and, and relationships and in community. There are. But sometimes we look at these and we think, okay, that's not relevant to me today, so I do not have to, I mean, I can't obey that one, or we don't need to obey that one. And others, we think, okay, yeah, that is, but then we get into big debates and arguments like, no, this is applicable today, no, this isn't. How do we decide which of these very detailed and specific instructions are still relevant to us today? But I think it would be much easier if the Bible were mainly and primarily an instruction book for us, a manual, then it would be much easier for us to understand. But as you see in your notes, uh, a very small portion uh, of the Bible is actually made up of instructions. 44%, around 44% of this entire book is actually a story, like narrative, just explaining what happened. And the narrative isn't really saying how it's supposed to be, it's just saying this is what happened, this is what it is, or this is what's going to happen in some cases. So a lot, of, it's really, the bi biggest portion of this is, um, is a story. The next biggest portion is uh, poetry. Like about a third of this whole book is poems or songs. And so if this were basic instructions, I would, be, I would expect not to have so many stories, right? Not to have so much poetry. And then there's a smaller percentage that is letters and sermons and, and uh, essays and stuff like that. So they are a little more instructional, but that's a small minority. So I think for children, it's okay to, to let them know these are basic instructions before leaving earth. But as we grow up, we realize maybe it's not that simple. The Bible really is... It's a story. Um, as you see there in your notes, the Bible tells just one story. There are a lot of stories in here. They're not always in chronological order either. But there's one story here, and it's really important for us to understand what that story is. Since the biggest, part of, the biggest portion of this book is narrative, let's talk about that story. Luke chapter 24, verse 27, Jesus um, tells us this when he's explaining um, to the, the people on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. They didn't even recognize it was him. And he says, Jesus begins with Moses. And all, he brings the Old Testament, Moses and all the prophets. And he explained to these people what was said in the scriptures concerning Jesus. So it's a story. And it's all about uh, Jesus. But stories can shape lives. That's why it's important for us to understand today that this is a story. It is the story. And this story shapes our lives. You have stories that shape your lives. It's not really a question of uh, what story uh, or, or whether a story is going to shape your life, but a, there is a story 
maybe many stories that are shaping your lives uh, right now as we speak. Maybe it's a story of capitalism, maybe it's a story of, of democracy, maybe it's whatever the story it is, a story of postmodernism, or whatever the story is, your story is being shaped, your life is being shaped by story. And stories give meaning uh, to our lives. So for example, let me just give you an example of how stories uh, shape the meaning for your life. I just need to drink from my Blue Bomber's mug here. Let's just imagine this scenario. You're waiting just outside the church here. We've got a bus stop. takes you right downtown. And as you're waiting at this bus stop, someone that you don't know comes and stands beside you and says these words as printed in your, in your notes. The Latin name of the harlequin duck is histrionicus histrionicus. What does that mean? What is happening? What, how would you react? Here's something that happened, we're pretending this happens in your life. What, what is going on? So there are three stories that would give meaning to this scenario in your life. For example, maybe this person um, mistook you because you look like someone that they saw at the Millennium Library yesterday. And when they were there, that person said, hey, do you happen to know the Latin name of the Harlequin Duck? At the time, they didn't know, so they searched it up later. And then they happened to see you, or they thought that was you. They thought you were that person. And so they tell you, oh, by the way, the Latin name for the Harlequin Duck is Histrionicus Histrionicus. But that would make sense, right? They go, oh, okay, I get it now. That's what's happening. That totally makes sense. It brings meaning to that odd event in your life, right? Or maybe there's another story that would bring a completely different meaning to what just happened. Perhaps this person um, is just coming back from their therapist. And their, their psychologist, their counselor told them, gave them some advice uh, to help him overcome his shyness. He said, you know, just start speaking, say, start speaking to strangers. And he said, well, what should I say? And maybe the therapist just said, well, it doesn't matter, just say anything, say something. Try to break out of this shell of shyness. And so he's on his way home, and he's going to try it right away. He sees you at the bus stop, and just first thing that comes to his mind, because he's a bird watcher, he says, hey, the Latin name for the harlequin duck is histrionicus, histrionicus. And you're like, oh, okay, now I understand. And if you knew that, you might, you might want to be kind and respond and help this person, right? Like, and then talk about birds and ask them questions and help them come out of their shell of shyness. So that's a different story, but it brings a completely different meaning, right, to that same event, doesn't it? Or maybe there's another story. Maybe that person is a spy from North Korea. And they have arranged to meet their counterpart at that bus stop right outside our church, there. And the code word that reveals their identity to this person is the Latin name for the harlequin duck. And now that adds a whole other meaning to the story, doesn't it? So you can see how stories will provide meanings to what is happening in your life right now, what happened in the past, and what will happen in the future. We can interpret what's happening in many different ways. There is a story, at least one, if not many stories, from our time in society that is shaping your life. So it's important for us to know, is there another story? Is there a grand story that is shaping our lives? And some people hesitate. They, they don't like you know, these big grand stories that, say that, that end up quashing all these other you know, minorities and minor stories for the, sake of the, for the sake of their purposes. And the story that is in the Bible is the grand story. But as we see and as we read the story, we realize this is not quashing. This is not trying to make everyone look the same. As we read in Revelation, the very end of the book, there is so much diversity. And it's not about um, 
bringing history to an end. It's all about Jesus Christ anyways. And so this story, yes, it's a grand story, but it's different than other grand stories and other of these meta-narratives that are trying to um, make people into a small little, you know, and quiet their voices. It's not like that at all as you read these stories. So the Bible is, first and foremost, a story. And it provides meaning to our lives. It helps us understand what is going on. So what I'm about to do, and I've practiced this a little bit, but never without mistakes. So I'm going to try to tell you the story from beginning to end, and to not bore you to death and to not make it last an hour. So I have some notes, but I know if I just read them, that is, my reading voice is boring. Take some notes, if you like, as I tell you the story of history, the story, God's story, the story of our lives. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first chapter in Genesis, um, it might be, I think it's good to know that the first chapter in Genesis was most likely written during the time that the Israelites were in, in Babylon. It's good for us because as, um, as the Israelites are in captivity, should I use another bite? Not yet? Okay, yes? Okay, I'm going to... Oh. It's like a giraffe. The reason why it's important for us to know that Genesis chapter 1 was most likely written during the captivity in Babylon is because these people, the original readers, the original hearers of this story, were surrounded by stories in Babylon. And they had their gods and their temples and their religion. And Babylon, the Babylonians also had a creation story. They had their version of how everything came into being. And their story was filled with violence and fighting. And so for them, creation came, the whole, their whole Life came together out of violence. And so these people who are in captivity, when they're recounting their story, and they, their God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and Moses and all that, when they write down the creation story, when God reveals to them how it actually happened, he's saying creation is an act of love. All that we see did not come out of violence and out of wars and battles. But God is a God of love. And it's because of that God of love, he created um, human beings. And so we see darkness being separated from light. We see the chaotic sea being separated from dry land. And then we see um, all sorts of living creatures coming together and living in harmony uh, with one another. And then finally, at the, the climax, at the very end of the creation, day seven, we see God is resting. He's just enjoying creation. He's looking, he just loves what he sees, and it's a joyful rest. And that's a gift that he gives to the human family. It's a gift he gives to humankind. But we know that's not really what it's like now. We don't often experience joyful rest, do we? We don't often have that time to just linger in God's presence and to love that kind of fellowship. So what happened? And here's where the Bible is very unique in its story. It talks about something that we don't want to talk about anymore. What theologians call the fall. 
And so God did not want us to know evil. God only wants us to know good. But we were given freedom in order that we could love God and, and love others. And so we wanted to know, we for ourselves, what is good and what is evil. And so we chose to turn our backs on God because we can't trust God with that, surely. And so we learned through disobedience from God what evil um, was. So then the world that was given to us to enjoy, the garden that was given to us to inhabit became a wilderness for us. And our relationships with other people were strained. And this neighbor that was given to us to be a neighbor became our rival. And the first two brothers, Cain and Abel, became murderer and his victim right from the very start. And then it just spiraled downward very quickly. Because, you see, we actually aren't capable of knowing what is good and what is evil on our own. And so when we took that responsibility on ourselves, it was just disastrous. And murder and rape and tension and anxiety and all this just became the norm uh, for human life. And pretty soon it got so out of control that God was actually sorry that he had created all this. And so he wanted to start all over again with Noah and Noah's family. And when Noah and his family came out of the ark, God gave them a sign, a rainbow, saying, this, I will never destroy um, all of this again. And the descendants of Noah were separated into 70 nations, and, and these were um, all the peoples in the world. But soon, it went wrong again. And all the nations of the world wanted to get together and build this Tower of Babel or, or Babylon because they wanted to be like God. They wanted to get to the top of this tower that was in the heavens so they could see as God could see and not just simply from below. But that turned disastrous and soon everyone was confused and no one could understand each other and the spiral of violence and corruption and deceit just kept getting worse. So God decides to start all over again. You see, God is very patient and God is very loving and he will never give up. And so out of all these nations, he chooses one man. Not just any man, but a very wealthy man who was living in one of the wealthiest civilizations at the time. He had lots of land, lots of sheep, a lot of slaves. And he chose Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I want you to leave all this behind and go to the land that I send you to. And so now we see a fresh start, a new kind of living for human life. Not one based on... Um, feeling secure because of all of the possessions that we've accumulated over time, but rather one that finds its security only in the promises of God for the future. Abraham, the model for living by faith. And so Abraham took his children and grandchildren and, and all of his people, his family, with him, and they had nothing. They were promised this, to possess this land, but all they really had was a grave for, to bury their dead. And soon a huge famine came across the land and they were forced to escape and run to Egypt because that's where they had some food. So the Israelites were living in Egypt at the time and now this was the center of the world with civilization and education and technology and they became slaves to the Egyptian people. And in fact, they became so numerous that the Egyptians decided we need to instigate some population control. And so all of the male babies were to be killed. But one baby survived, baby Moses, and he grew up. He was rescued by a daughter of Pharaoh, if you can believe it. And so he grew up in the palace, and he learned that education. He learned about the technology and their language, but he always knew he was different. He always knew that those slaves and the Israelites were his 
his brothers and his sisters. They were part of his family. And so one day he sees an Egyptian beating one of the slaves, the Israelite slaves, and he got so angry and he retaliated and ended up killing that Egyptian. And when his sin was found out, he realized he had to flee. So he ran away over to uh, the desert, settled with the Canaanites, and ended up marrying his boss's daughter because he was a shepherd. So it seems like this over and over again, one of the themes we see, the story, it's, it's done. It's over. These promises that God had given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and what's of all this now? But God doesn't forget. And so one day when Moses was out, he saw this bush that was burning. It was on fire, but it wasn't like burning down. It, was just, it just kept burning. And he heard a voice calling uh, to Moses. And so he walks over. And he hears this voice saying, Moses, I'm sending you to rescue my people from Egypt. And he's like, what, me? Like, you must be kidding. And he hears the voice says, I will be with you. And Moses is like, well, who are you? Like, if I go to these people, and I can say, someone I don't even know, I don't know his name, like, is telling me to come and get you? What are they going to say? So the voice says, I will be who I will be. That's my name, Yahweh. The Lord. Now your ancestors knew me just by the name, if you don't for the word for God, like El or Allah. But this is my personal name. I will be with you. I am who I am. And so Moses goes, and there's a great struggle with the powers of Egypt. But finally Moses leads his people out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, and into the desert of Sinai. And their God makes a covenant with his people. Remember, this is a covenant. It's not a contract. It's not something that was negotiated over a period of time and went back and forth. It's a one-way, unilateral. God is making this covenant with his people. And he will be faithful to his people even when his people are faithless. And he gives them this covenant and gives them these ten special words that we call uh, the Ten Commandments. And there's two things um, that I'd like you to realize about the Ten Commandments. I'm trying to remember what those two things are. But first of all, um, it gets a bad rap. Because people think it's just all negative, you know, it's just like thou shalt not do all of these things that you, you know, can't do. So it doesn't feel very good. But the first thing to note is that the very first and the greatest commandment is very positive. The very first and greatest commandment says, I am the Lord. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I rescued you. So don't go after other gods. See, we're tempted to follow all kinds of gods. And they promise all kinds of things. Money, prosperity, pleasure, happiness, everything. And God says, but they don't really love you. I am the God who loves you and rescued you and brought you out of the land of Egypt, so don't go after the other gods. This is a tremendously positive statement. And any of those, all those other negative statements that follow uh, in the Ten Commandments actually bring freedom when they are followed and when they are obeyed. So God calls his people. They're going to be a priesthood for all the nations. Through them, the rest of the world is going to come to know God. But this proves to be very costly. It's, it's not easy to be a priestly nation. And Moses is at the top of Mount Sinai, and the rest of the people are at the bottom of, of the mountain. They've already forgotten all that God has done for them. And they start making their own gods, made of an idol of all their jewelry, and they're bowing down and worshiping this this God, and again, God's patience seems to kind of wear out and wear down, and he's ready to start all over again and destroy everything, and Moses pleads with him, and so God relents. 
So the people learn during their time in the desert that they have to depend every day on God for their manna. They have to depend on miraculous springs that come out of rock for, for water. They rely on a pillar of cloud um, by day and, and a fire, fire by night. And so later, people look back. Later generations look back and realize this is a time when Israel was learning to live by faith. Learning to depend on God only. So Israel finally reaches the promised land and their faith fails them. They still can't go. They don't believe all that God has promised for them. After a generation passes away, and Moses passes away, Joshua comes to the helm, and he's the leader. And we read in the book of Joshua how they finally came and settled the entire land. But then the next book, Judges, we read, and it's chaotic again. It's just been, it's all, this, this phrase is repeated over and over again. Um, at that time, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own It's anarchy. There's idolatry, there's murder, there's gang rape, there's all kinds of horror. It's disgusting. And so the people say, we want a king to be like the other nations. We want to be like them, and so we want a king. And now for the first time in this story, we're introduced to prophets, starting with Samuel and going all the way to John the Baptist. And so the people go to Samuel and say, we want a king. And God tells Samuel what it would be like if the people get a king. He says, the king will take your land and make it his gardens. The king will take your wives for his concubines. And the king will take your money through all these taxes. This is what it will be like if you get a king. But the people say, no, it doesn't matter. We want to be like the other nations. We want a king. So Samuel, the prophet Samuel, anoints the first king, Saul. And while it may have started out well, by the end of Saul's life, it is disastrous. He has become so jealous of uh, his military leader that he kills himself and the armies of Israel are just completely destroyed by their enemies. See, we're introduced to something else here for the first time. Politics. If we were all obedient to God's law, we wouldn't need a king. Because we would do from our heart what we know is right. And if we do need kings, if we do need law courts, if we do need police and prisons, it's because we've forgotten and we've forsaken God. So we see in the story that God gives a political order to us, and yet he warns us right from the beginning that it is itself a source of profound corruption. And we see that happening immediately in Saul's life, and then the next king, and then the next king, and David became king after that. And future generations looked back and thought this was a great king, and he, this is a time in Israel when, when kingship was done rightly. But the Bible is very honest and very frank detailing all of David's personal sins and just the corruption in his own family because within a generation, his children are divided against each other and the whole kingdom, there's a civil war and the kingdom is divided into two. And it gets worse from there. These two kingdoms are divided. They're fighting against each other. It used to be one kingdom, now they're two and they hate each other. And amidst all these battles, another stronger empire, the Assyrian Empire comes and the Babylonian Empire come, comes and takes over all of Israel and all Judah. And now these people are living in a land that's not their own. Their temples have been destroyed. They have no freedom. And they're living in another completely different land as strangers and foreigners. Again, it seems like, I guess that's the end of the story. Like it's maybe God just start all over again, like recreate everything because it's done. And that might have been what happened if it weren't for prophets. Prophets like Elisha and Elijah and and Isaiah, and Nahum, and Habakkuk, and so many others. These people were God's 
these were God's spokespeople. God would give them messages to pass on to the people. And these people were reminding God that God is not like the God of those other nations. He's compassionate. And he's full of mercy. And he's faithful. Even when you're not faithful, he is faithful. And so these people lived among the exiles. And, they, and especially there's two prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. One, both living at the same time, one in the south and one in the north. And Jeremiah is known as someone whose life very closely resembles the life and ministry of, of Jesus. And in Jeremiah's time, the people still thought that God, that Yahweh, was like the other gods. And so if you wanted to appease him or if you wanted him to protect you, you needed to offer the right sacrifices and do the right worship rituals so that he would protect you. But Jeremiah is saying, no, he, our God is not like that other God or all the other gods of all the other nations. And so before the temple is even destroyed, Jeremiah stands in the gate of the temple and he tells his people, it's no use, it's no use. Like, stop saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and thinking that God is going to protect you. He is not. He's going to punish you for your sins. So they threw him in prison. We probably would have done the same. But even in prison, he keeps, you know, God is merciful and God's compassionate, but you're being punished for your sins. Keeps saying that his message does not change. And then the other great prophet, Ezekiel, was giving uh, these fantastic visions to the people who were exiled in Babylon. One day, the mighty spirit of God is going to come in such power that even a valley of dry bones, just skeletons, would arise and become a mighty army. The glory of God will once again fill the temple in Jerusalem and fill the entire world. And we can see, as we read the Psalms, that they were taunted and they were teased by the people around them in, in, when they were in exile because they're saying, where is this mighty God of yours? We read that in the Psalms. But we also read in the Psalms, people's response, like, Gar, God reigns. He will reign. He does reign and he will reign over all the nations of the world. In spite of their surroundings, somehow through the ministry of the prophets, they had this vision that things are going to change. But history changes all the time, right? First it was Assyria. Then it was Babylon, now Persia. Now Persia is the strongest military uh, country in the world, nation in the world, and then they take over from Babylon. And their king Cyrus, uh, for some reason, he lets some of the priests and Levites and people and leaders to go back to Jerusalem and to restart. And so it seems like God is faithful. Now we can rebuild the temple, we can rebuild the walls. And through Nehemiah and through Esther, uh, through Ezra, they, they, they restore their, their covenant and they, they build these, they, they have a little bit of, it's small and it's puny compared to Solomon's time, but, but they feel that God is on their side again. But then the wheels of history turn again. And now there's an even more mighty army from Greece under the leadership of Alexander the Great. And he comes along and now he takes over everything. And now all the world is speaking Greek and adopting their, their cultures and, and their practices. And there's a vision from the prophet Daniel at this time. He has this vision of these beast-like empires of Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece. But then there's one more, the Ancient of Days, who is not like a beast but like a son of man. And now the question is, when will the Son of Man appear? And now we've come to the last three books of the Old Testament, Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi. And we learn here about the promise that the messenger of the Lord is coming and he will establish the Lord's reign. It's these three books, Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi, that Jesus refers to most when Jesus begins teaching a little bit later. But then again, 
politics, history, it all changes. And now Greece is no longer the strongest military regime in the world. It's Rome. And so now the Roman Empire takes over. And there are soldiers everywhere. And the Israelites are forced to acknowledge there's another lord and another savior. And they have to pay taxes uh, to this new emperor and to, to this new lord. The children of Israel are scattered all across the Mediterranean. They have no king. Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece... They've all come and gone, and, but now the mighty power of Rome dominates the world. But Israel is still waiting for that day when God will finally fulfill his promises to them. And it's into this world that Jesus is born. We don't know very, little, very much about Jesus' first 30 years of his life, except there's that one fantastic story when he was 12 years old, and he goes to the temple, and he's teaching, and he teaches the, the, the leaders, the, the teachers of the law, and so we see that Jesus, one of the things that we do know from Jesus' life is that he really knew the scriptures. He knew these stories so well that he could teach adults. And the people referred to him as rabbi. And that, that's a professional term. That's just for professional teachers. But Jesus really knew the scriptures and was able to explain. And he had authority when he taught like no one else could. That's one thing we know for sure, even from his early days. The other thing we know is that Jesus knew God as Father. And he uses this Aramaic word, Abba, which is a very intimate term. So it's the most intimate term that we use for a child with their father. And this is such a meaningful word that even though the Bible was written in Greek, we kept that word in Aramaic, Abba. It's not a Greek word, it's Aramaic. Abba, Father. And so we see that Jesus knew his scriptures extremely well, and he had this intimate connection with God, so intimate that now he calls him his father, Abba. But Israel's still waiting. They're still waiting for God to act. There hadn't been any authentic prophets, you know, for many years, for a long, long time, but now there's rumors about a new prophet named John, and John is a relative of Jesus. John appeared in the desert and seemed to represent someone like Elijah, an authentic voice from God. And John was calling the whole nation of Israel to repent. Israel had entered the promised land through the waters of Jordan. And now John is calling Israel back to the starting point. Make a radically fresh beginning to go through the waters of Jordan in a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and make a new start. And this is where we see Jesus publicly for the first time. He's standing in the crowd of all these repentant sinners, and he's asking for baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus doesn't make a distinction between himself and them. He is part of Israel. He's identified with Israel in their sins. He's numbered with the transgressors. And so John, as we know, tried to resist. No, I'm not supposed to baptize you. But Jesus insisted, and so was baptized by John in the Jordan River for the forgiveness of sins. And what happened next launches Jesus into his public ministry. He hears a voice from heaven that said, This is my son, in whom I am well pleased. And he received from heaven that anointing of the Holy Spirit that was promised through Ezekiel. Many years ago, the prophets had promised this, and now the Holy Spirit of God, the power and the Holy Spirit to bring this kingly reign of God has been anointed, and Jesus has been anointed with that Holy Spirit. And so from this time on, we have had to rethink how we talk about God in terms of Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit. Jesus announces the kingdom of God is so close. It is at hand. It is like right here. But the people are confused because they're expecting a kingdom like Assyria or Babylon or Persia or Greece or, or something like Rome. They're expecting this big military regime to come and make everyone bow down their knees to Jesus as Lord or to, to their God. They didn't get it. But the kingdom of God isn't, isn't a military regime. It's not a different kind of politics. It's not a strong military. It's not a new ideology. It's not even a new philosophy or even a new religion. The kingdom of God is Jesus in person. So people say, well, where is this kingdom? How come we can't see it? They didn't get it. They're confused, but not only that, the authorities are starting to get worried because they hear about this Jesus guy. And so they send scouts to wherever Jesus is to find out what he's saying. And so Jesus is forced to use coded language so that the scouts from Jerusalem don't really understand what he's saying. And so he uses parables and, and illustrations, and yet they are such that those who want to hear are able to understand. But it's not just what he says, it's what he does. With a word, he heals people. He, people who have never seen before, now they can see. He heals people who are blind, and he does all these amazing things. Not just that he doesn't just say it, he actually does things. And one of the most alarming things that he does is announce the forgiveness of sins. How can he do that? The law clearly describes how you can be forgiven from your sins. You bring the right sacrifices to the temple and the priest who's the mediator. You know, he does these things for you, and you receive forgiveness of sins. And so people are shocked, people are confused, but they follow him. His words have power. He's here to set people free. He teaches with authority. Out of the crowds that follow him, Jesus chooses special companions to live and eat and travel with him so that they can firsthand experience the kingdom of God. And so he takes them away from the crowd and asks them, who do you say I am? And so God puts it into the heart of Simon Peter. And he says, you are the Christ. You are the one whom God has sent to reign to establish his kingdom. And now Jesus begins to teach them what kind of kingdom this is. In line with everything Jesus learned in the scriptures, he taught them that the one who reigns is also the one who suffers, the one who's rejected, the one who's humiliated, but finally will be vindicated in the end. And so Jesus chooses his final entry into Jerusalem at the time of the Passover when there's so much excitement, and he chooses to enter on a donkey. He chose a prophecy from Zechariah which spoke of a king who would come riding on a donkey to claim his kingdom. So Jesus rides on a donkey right into the heart of Jerusalem, right into the temple. And he overturns the table and he pronounces judgment on this temple. He says, this will be destroyed in three days, we'll make it again. And people laughed and they mocked him. They didn't understand what he was talking about. Because this temple is not going to be rebuilt with huge stones that King Herod gathered together. These are not going to be stones that Solomon used. They are made with living stones men and women who have given their lives over to the lordship of Jesus Christ. But people don't like this. They understand that either you accept what Jesus is teaching or we kill him. And the authorities decided it was time to kill Jesus. So Jesus needs to teach his followers one last thing. He gathered them together on the last night before the Passover finished and said, um, 
he just, the familiar meal, he made it a demonstration. He took the bread and he broke it. And you know the words. He gave thanks and gave it to them saying, this is my body broken for you. And he took a cup and shared it with them. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many. Drink all of it. Uh, drink it, all of you. This cup will be the new covenant that Jeremiah had promised in which the law of God will be written not on stone tablets, but on our hearts, the hearts of both men and women. So Jesus is arrested and he's condemned to death. It's not the first time that someone, uh, a freedom fighter, uh, was killed for attempting to restore Israel to promise, but to prominence, but Jesus was completely unlike all those other leaders. Jesus' words were not curses for those who tortured him. Rather, his words were, Father, forgive them. Darkness filled the land, and Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you remember at the beginning of the story, in the Garden of Eden, we heard those words, Adam, where are you? The sound of a, of a mother or a father lost, who lost their children in an amusement park. and Where are you? And now we hear Jesus calling out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's like he's taken the role of the lost child. He says, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he, he yells out, and says, it is finished. The work is done. The prince of this world has been cast out. Jesus bows his head and gives up his spirit. He's been crucified, and he's dead. He's been buried. This obviously seems like the end of the story. It was a failed revolution. Just one more nail in the coffin, right, for the people of God. But just as Jesus promised, he comes back to life on the third day. And this means that new creation has started. A new creation has begun. What happened on that day was something that was brand new. The beginning of a new era for the world. Jesus tells his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until that promised Holy Spirit that had been promised many hundreds of years ago is coming to be filled and to anoint you with power to take this message, to take the kingdom of God to Judah, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. And so in Acts we read, how these people were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit so they could proclaim the good news, proclaim the gospel, that Jesus Christ died, came back to life, and, and now he's reigning from heaven. And as we read through the rest of the New Testament, we realize this is something that is completely brand new, and they're trying to figure out what is going on. How do we incorporate Gentiles into this community? Do they have to do the same things that Jewish people have to do? Oh, there are no Jews and Gentiles anymore. What does that mean? And so Paul writes all these letters, and most of them are written because there's problems in the early church. And so he's addressing these problems. Like we don't really want to be like them. Many people say, let's be like the early church, but they were really trying to figure, they were not really a great church. But as you read these things, and, and, um, and James, the brother of Jesus, writes, and, and Peter, and they're trying to figure out how do we do this new thing. And so these are very... Um, much more instructional for us as we are trying to figure out, continue to live um, in this new world as well. And finally, we come to the book of Revelation and we see visions of how things are going to end. There's going to be a huge battle. On one side, there's all the military power and guns and weapons and whatever. And on the other side, there is a, a lamb who was slaughtered. And it's going to be the power of his word and testimony. And, and those are the weapons that one side uses compared with the power of the other side. And there are lies and deceit. And over here, there's truth. And so we know when Jesus comes at the light of the world, there will be no more deceit. There will be no more darkness. Everything will come to light. We will see everything as it really is. And that means there will be, there will be judgment. 
And we can see that this heavenly city, which we will all be part of, is not something that we have created. It is something by the gift of God. It's, it's given to all of us um, by God. It's a gift of his grace. And we're looking forward to that, and we keep moving towards that. So this is the grand story that gives meaning to all of our lives. And so, what is the meaning of your life? There are many other stories, like I mentioned earlier. Other religions have different stories. Other philosophies have different stories. And we try to find meaning in those stories. But there's a problem. The one problem is working towards whatever it is we're working towards. I'm going to die, and I won't get to be part of that. So it's just, I'm just working towards something for, that I don't even get to be part of in the future because we all die. Or maybe we think, um, so we, we either work towards something and it's kind of fruitless because we don't ever get to be, to be part of it. But in this story, we all get to be part of it. Whatever we're working towards, whatever encourages love, the ministry of the Spirit, these things that we're building towards will last forever. And we know that in the end, everyone will be, will be brought back to life. There will be judgment, and we can look forward to that. It's not simply about us. It's about Jesus, but we get to be part of that. And so this story brings meaning to our lives. We are part of this story. So how is it then, you as individual, how is it that we as Cornerstone, how is it that our denomination is a part of this story? Jesus said, before he left, to wait for the Holy Spirit's coming to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And for some reason, this movement has spread and continues to grow around the world through the testimony of his church. So how can we be part of that? How can this story add meaning to our lives? In your small groups, in your life groups, you will look at this a little more. And as you read the story, I want you to read the Bible, understand the story, and we are part of it. It brings meaning to our lives, and everything we do is not uh, useless or meaningless. And so I just want to finish um, by introducing the sermon series, Light of the World, Jesus is Coming Up Next. We're going to give you one way that you may be able to contribute to this grand story that Jesus is, is, um, has brought us into. Every year, for the last several years, we've given away one of our offerings, just all of it. We've just given it to a fund to support um, missionaries or international workers to take the gospel to places where no one has heard it before, the Jaffrey Project. And this year, instead of giving you the Jaffrey Project, we want to specifically give all of one, of our, one of our week from December 22, to not just one Sunday, but everything that comes in online, December 22nd to 28th, as part of our Christmas gift, will all go to the Global Advance Fund to support international workers uh, overseas. We won't get one penny of that. We're just going to funnel it all through. It is one way that we can provide, um, that we can see how we are part of this um, big story. There are two families in our church, Kilbrays and Calders, who have been sent out and who are fully supported from the Global Advance Fund. We want to see at least 10% of all of our giving going towards missions. We're about 5 or 6% right now, so we're hoping December 22 to 28 will be one opportunity for us, even if we are, uh, leaves us lacking in other areas. Um, we're going to give the great Christmas uh, giveaway that day. But that's just one way 
that you can be part. As you make decisions of what university you're going to or what career you're going to do or how you live, how you bring glory to God in everyday life, remember, you're part of this bigger story. And so pray into that. And as you're praying in your groups, and even as you're praying on your own, you might have some ideas. We would love to hear those. God will speak to all of us. We all have the Holy Spirit within us and guiding us. And let us look into the future and how we can be part of that bigger story. Stories will shape your lives. This is the grand story that gives the most meaning to your lives. Let me pray, and then we'll sing one more song. Heavenly Father, thank you for just being so amazing. Thank you for being able to do whatever you can do in spite of our lack of faith, in spite of our disbelief, in spite of our disobedience. God, you are so much more powerful than all of that. And so we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are not like those other gods, that you are so full of compassion and mercy and, and justice. And we look forward to that day. Even if we happen to die before that day comes, we know we'll be part of that huge celebration when you bring your kingdom here in all its fullness. And so thank you for that hope. And God, I don't know what it means for us right now as a church or us as individuals, but will you show us? What does this mean for us? How are we part of your story? How can we build into that story even more than we're doing?